Do most Christians base their belief on scientific evidence? Um, maybe some do. If you like the fine-tuning argument, it's possible, right? But probably not. I mean, let's be real. Like, most people aren't Christians because of the fine-tuning argument, and a lot of Christians maybe don't even know what it is. Plausibly, most Christians' faith isn't based on scientific evidence. But the problem with this definition, a belief doesn't have to be based on scientific evidence to be rational. That's just crazy. Philosophy, math, morality, even assumptions that are fundamental to science, like induction, which is that the future will be like the past. Those aren't things we can get scientific evidence for. There are these kind of fundamental assumptions that we have to make about the world. So these can't be based on scientific evidence. And notice, even the statement itself that in order to be rational, something has to be based on scientific evidence. That can't be based on scientific evidence, right? Hi, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will, and today we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Liz Jackson. She is a philosopher, a Christian philosopher, and she has done a lot of things uh, engaging in this. You can actually go to her website. We'll put all the plugins here, but really great work that she's done, has great discussions. You can see all that, but today we have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Liz Jackson onto our program. So, Liz, thank you for coming. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Oh, no. Thank you for being on. It's actually, I'm super stoked and I've been kind of wired about it all day. So I was at work and I was just <laughs> super stoked. So um, I, Aww, I, I, love these, I love these conversations. And honestly, I think your work is fantastic. And so, um, yeah. So I guess my biggest thing is I just kind of want to hop on in here and let people get to know you because I've read a lot of your work and I've seen you engage in discussions like with Cosmic Skeptic and other people. And uh, it was one of those things where I'm like, she, I really appreciated your demeanor, and I'm, not, I'm honestly not just trying to fluff up your feathers um, and make you feel all good, but you should feel good about it a little bit. But um, I was really impressed with your demeanor, the way you approach things, and how you know calm and rational you were. And uh, you're also very kind in spirit, and that's something that we don't see often when engaging in that realm. We see a lot of animosity and you know a lot of mm -hmm. tension, and you just seemed like you were just so chill and relaxed throughout the entire experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I wanted to tie uh, some. Uh, I wanted some time for people to kind of get to know you personally and then mm. also get to know why you do what you do. And so mm -hmm. I thought that would just be a fantastic thing to talk to you about. And I, so with that being said, I'll kind of let you take it away. I'm just going to, you know, I guess, how were you really raised around topics such as faith and things along that nature? Yeah, so I was raised in a Christian home, um, Protestant Christian home. And actually, um, interestingly, my parents were both in ministry. So um, that's kind of, yeah, kind of, it's, 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 you know, I used to think like, oh, everyone's parents don't like raise money, don't raise support. Like I thought everyone's parents did. I just, <laughs> I didn't know anything else. So my parents have basically been in ministry my whole life. And my dad's, you know, taught Bible at churches and events and done a Sunday school class and all of that. So um, in terms of like faith specifically, I don't know if we talked about like, what is faith? And I think that's something I kind of got interested in later, but they definitely talked to me a lot about, you know, the Bible and God. And I just, I learned a ton from them and, you know, was really grounded in scripture. And um, I just feel really blessed, I guess, that I was raised in a family like that. So. Yeah, no kidding. That's, that's that's funny. I didn't know your parents were both in ministry and then, and mm. you know, being what we call moochinaries, you know, taking all the money. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm 
I'm allowed to crack that joke. My sister and brother-in-law were missionaries, so I, I have a pass. At least I think I do. So I don't know. Maybe the angry comments will say otherwise. But uh, <laughs> that's really cool, though. I really appreciate that. Uh, and so obviously you're raised around uh, Christianity. You're raised around the faith a little bit, which I think is really interesting, especially because of the direction you went as far as your work is concerned. So uh, so speaking of your work, like what got you actually interested in things like philosophy, especially, of course, as it relates to your faith? Because I think that's a really interesting topic that not a lot of people explore. Yeah, so I think it's funny when people ask me about this, because I actually think I was interested in philosophy, like as a kid, even like from a really young age, but I just didn't know it was philosophy. Like I didn't know what philosophy was, you know, um, but I like to tell this story where I don't know exactly how old I was, but maybe like in middle school or something. And I just got this piece of paper and I just wrote down like every question I had about like God and the universe and morality and time and, you know, all those big topics. And I really actually, I wish I, I need to go find it. I think I have it somewhere, but I haven't looked at it in years. Just some light but thinking, huh? <laughs> yeah, I was like a nerd when I was like, yeah, even as a kid. So, but you know, it was, it was even stuff like, yeah, like how do we reconcile Jesus' two natures and what caused God, if anything? And um, I actually remember too, one of the questions, which we might uh, talk about later that was on there was like, I don't think we can be 100% sure that God exists or that Christianity is true. Maybe we can be 99% sure, but what if we can't be 100% sure? Is that bad? Like, what do we do about that? And I think I, I remember wrestling with that specifically, which I really think actually does relate a lot to faith and um, what faith is and whether it's rational. So, um, so I think I was thinking about faith and these other big questions as a kid. Um, but I guess, so fast forward a little bit. So in college, I actually started off at a Bible college in Kansas. That's where I did like my freshman and sophomore years. And um, I took all these Bible classes there. They were really, you know, interesting. I enjoyed them a lot. But I think when I really was like, I found my people is I um, transferred to Kansas State University. And I remember like not really being sure what I wanted to major in. And I was kind of interested in some political stuff. So I was like, maybe political science. But I took this philosophy class and I was just like, these are my people. Like, this is what I've been interested in since I was a kid, you know, and it was just this eye opening experience for me. And so I was like, I'm a philosophy major. And my parents were like, uh, <laughs> do you want your college paid for or not? <laughs> but like, I eventually kind of got them on board with it and it was okay. And then I was like, I'm going to go to grad school. And they were like, what? <laughs> so it was, you know, it took some convincing, but you know, now they're, they're very supportive. They, they love what I do. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, it's the classic philosophy major thing. What are you going to do with that? So I'm very blessed that now, um, you know, I just finished my PhD a year ago and um, I right now work at Australian National University, which is a university in Canberra. Basically, um, I do research. So it's it's a great gig. I <laughs> just get to do research there. And then kind of jealous, um, low key. That's I fine. Know, it's <laughs> I feel. Yeah, it's it's really great. Um, and then I'm actually moving my husband. And I, uh, I actually just got married, so it's it's still weird to say husband. Uh, we're moving to Toronto in the fall, and I'm going to be teaching at a school there called Ryerson University. So I'll basically just be a philosophy professor there. Um, so, so yeah, that's I guess kind of a little bit about me and my background, and kind of 
how I got into the whole philosophy thing. <laughs> that's that's really funny. That's really kind of cool too. Like, because um, uh, it's funny how you mentioned that that was you didn't know what that was, but you knew mm -hmm. it. But until you found out, because I remember it was like probably the age of thirteen. I remember I was. This is gonna sound super silly. I was like putting together some things, uh, like uh, some Legos, because I'm a nerd, uh, much like yourself. <laughs> um, but I'm probably I don't know how nerdy you are, but I'm like. Anyway, embarrassing. But I remember specifically going, why is that wrong? Whoa. Like, and I just felt like I fell, stumbled mm -hmm. across the biggest, deepest truth. And I just started asking questions and questions and questions. And it's funny how you say that because in ministry, I started realizing as a pastor that the fact that, you know, philosophy is you know, one of those things where I'm like, oh, this actually is extremely useful in Christianity. And I just didn't mm -hmm. know that that's what I was doing was a philosophical, you know, I didn't know what to call it. And, you know, I was just in a nice little Christian home or whatever. So, yeah, anyway. Um, so I guess, uh, I guess I can relate with you on that one. Although I didn't pursue philosophy, I'm in ministry, so I'm a totally different ballgame. But um, anyway, so how do you, so as you explored philosophy and you explored the intricacies and the insides and outs uh, of this obviously you did a lot of work on in philosophy so how do you believe philosophy helped you in your christian faith yeah that's a great question so i think there's a couple things um i want to say about this um i think the first thing is that especially in sort of the interactions we were talking about at the beginning when you're interacting with people who disagree with you or people who don't share your faith um, I think studying philosophy it just helps you be a lot less defensive about it. And you're just kind of open to talking about it and open to hearing objections. And it's kind of funny because in philosophy, they kind of view certain things very differently than um, other people view them. So philosophers actually love it when you give them objections to their theories. And they they even love it when, when you disagree with them because they're like, oh, I can learn from this. I can get new objections. Like, let's do philosophy. You know, I mean, we're nerds, like you said. Right. Um, and so I think it's it's actually it's in some ways it's a really healthy way to look at disagreement, though, because you look at it as a learning opportunity. And so when you're encountering people that disagree with your faith or don't share the same faith commitments and kind of want to talk talk about it, you don't have to come at it like really defensively. You can say, like, let's learn from each other. You know, that's that's the way philosophers do it. And so I think that's one way it's helped me a lot is just to kind of be able to have these open discussions with people and not, um, I guess, yeah, not be just like super defensive or worried like they're going to, you know, tear everything down or something. Um, and I think also related to this, uh, philosophy is just giving me a lot of time to sort of think about why I believe what I believe, kind of why I'm a Christian, why that's an important commitment to me. Um, and, and, and that's another reason I feel like I don't have to be defensive because I feel like I have reasons, you know. Um, and so I would encourage like people in general, you know, you don't have to go out and do your PhD or whatever. But I think this kind of process of thinking through why you believe what you believe is a really important process to go through. And um, I think this is one reason like shows like this are really great because it gives you an opportunity to kind of be exposed to, you know, issues in philosophy and theology and church history and, you know, all the different stuff you guys talk about, uh, you know, without going out and, you know, doing a PhD or whatever. That's a big commitment, I realize. So so I, I think, yeah, that's another thing. It's just helped me feel grounded in my faith. Um, and then the third thing that philosophy has helped me with is just being a part of the Christian philosophical community. And I want to kind of make two points about this. So 
The first point, I mean, these are kind of for people who maybe aren't familiar with philosophy and don't know as, um, as much about the culture. But the first thing, just I think it's good for people to know in general, is that there's a lot of Christian philosophers out there. Um, Christian philosophy is actually kind of going through a revival right now. Um, and it's really awesome. Like there's just, it's just booming. Um, so I think it's, it's really cool. And I think a lot of people like, oh, I don't know, that movie God's Not Dead or whatever, you think, oh, philosophy, like, they're all atheists, they're going to make you doubt Christianity or whatever, but that's actually not the reality within philosophy. Um, obviously, not everyone is a Christian or anything like that, but I, there's a lot more Christian philosophers than you might have thought. Um, and um, so, so that's just been really wonderful for me personally, just to kind of be a part of that and have that community and have those friendships. Um, and I guess the other thing to note, too, that goes along with this is that um, a lot of people maybe hear an objection to Christianity or an objection to theism or an argument that God doesn't exist. And they think, oh, it's devastating. It's, it's over. You know, like this is a knockdown argument. Like and the thing is, like Christian philosophers <laughs> are thinking about these things and working on these things and probably have responses to a lot of these objections that you're hearing. Um, and I mean, that's true on the other side as well, like atheist philosophers also exist and they're also working on these issues. But I think when someone says they have a knockdown argument for Christi uh, against Christianity that, that no one's ever replied to or something, I think we need to view that with a little bit of skepticism because there's a lot of Christian philosophers out there doing a lot of really cool work and very likely they are aware of it and it's probably been responded to in print many times and actually maybe even that's been responded to, then that's been responded to. I mean, you know, so I think um, just just realizing that there are these arguments going on, I think is helpful um, that, especially for people on YouTube, you know, Christian, Christian philosophers are doing a lot of work. And um, so I want people to kind of be aware of that. Yeah, I think uh, that's actually awesome. I love everything that of what you just said, because there is something so freeing, as you mentioned, about mm -hmm. learning philosophy and learning the fact that, man, I can really engage with these people. I don't have to be scared of what's coming. Uh, that was one of the things as I got involved more and more in philosophy and apologetics myself. And like I said, I'm a pastor, so I'm more on the theistic side and just in general. I'm normally really trying to study the, the more the culture, the actual um, context of scriptures and stuff like that. But philosophy backs up so much of it. And it's one of those things where mm -hmm. I realize that, like I said, every time like no Christian has ever be able to answer it. I love it when they do that. And then you'll see somebody like Trinity Radio do a response to it directly. We're like, uh, actually, <laughs> we have responded to this. Or you see like Dr. William Lane Craig just, just, just rake it through and it's so cool to see that and actually my first exposure to Christian philosophy was a probably no surprise to a lot of people but Ravi Zacharias mm -hmm. and when I first heard him do his moral like argument in person I was my mouth dropped to the floor I was like wow that was see that was locked tight like and that mm -hmm. was really the exposure for me that showed me that man philosophy is not the enemy of Christianity it's actually our friend but we also need to be willing to do what Paul did like Acts 17 right he said he reasoned with them every day mm -hmm. in the temple. Well, you can't reason with people every day if all you're if you're too scared to engage them or mm -hmm. if you know you turn tail or run or mm -hmm. if you get instantly defensive and you want to, you know, pull out the sword and start going to town. So, mm -hmm. you know, you yeah. need to be able to willing to have those conversations with people and that's why, you know, on my, our page where that's one of the things that we push here is like, well, let's have rational conversations about this and as soon as somebody gets starts getting a little too sassy, I'm like, all right, you like you you that's not what we're about here. Like, I'm not I, I mean, I could throw a all day and I'm sure you could too but that's not the point so I really like mm. that but 
the thing is what I've noticed when I've talked to, uh, especially, I guess it depends on what group you're part of, but certain Christians get really scared around philosophy because I feel like they think it's, you know, um, almost uh, trading ec uh, faith for academia and things like that. So how do you mm -hmm. think your philosophy directly relates to faith? And what would you say to Christians who actually believe that philosophy is trading faith for academia? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I actually recently heard a distinction that I think is really helpful for this. Um, that's the distinction between childlike faith and childish faith. Okay, so childlike faith is good. It's something we should all strive for. And this is basically like a total trust in God. It's kind of having a genuine relationship with God, humbling yourself before God, kind of seeing the way, seeing God the way a child might see their parent. And it's just this total trusting way, right? Um, so you could have childlike faith. That doesn't mean you have childish faith, where childish faith is kind of like blind faith or maybe faith without reasons. Um, and, and, and to hear I'll say, I actually don't think you have to be able to give me a ton of arguments in order to rationally believe in God. I don't think that, that that's the case. But at the same time, you know, like First Peter says, like we need to have an answer when people ask us. Um, and if your faith is childish, you don't have that answer. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think we should be able to sort of articulate reasons for our beliefs. And in a lot of cases that will involve at least some kind of philosophy or theology, even if it's, you know, just kind of learning the basics. So that's, I think that distinction is really helpful. We should have childlike faith and that we should trust God, but not childish faith and that we don't have any reasons for what we believe. And I actually think, too, when you don't have childish faith, when you have good reasons for what you believe, this helps you have childlike faith, right? Because then your faith is well-grounded and you can trust God. And if someone gives you objections or, you know, whatever, you'll, you'll have that grounding when your faith is challenged. So I think faith, uh, sorry, I think philosophy in academia, they really help us avoid childish faith, but also bolster the childlike faith. Um, so I also think, um, a, a third point here that I want to say, I think sometimes people think about it like this, um, there's God, there's God's working, there's the Holy Spirit, and then there's like human reason and logic and academia. And these are two totally separate realms. They don't interact. If you're using like human reason, then you can't be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I just think that is not true. That is not the right way to think about it. Um, and I actually think the Holy Spirit can totally work uh, and even change hearts through philosophy and through arguments and through logic. So I don't think we have to choose between the Holy Spirit and then like philosophy or reason and arguments. And it's just a mistake to think that they're mutually exclusive. So um, God works. God works sometimes through, you know, directly revealing himself, but God can also work through arguments and through philosophy. And I think we kind of miss that. So, yeah. That is that, that uh, childish faith and childlike faith. Brian, write that down. I'm using that in a sermon <laughs> illustration. That is solid. No, that is really good point though, because I that's one of the things that has always bothered me. I'm like, because uh, actually, when you get into philosophy and everything, okay, for example, people are like, well, we ought to be theological. I've heard, literally, I've literally heard this. Well, we ought to be theological, not philosophical. I'm like, well, mm -hmm. theological is literally just a view of God, which is philosophical in nature. Like, even if you get into like the things that the church is actually 
actually split over, no pun intended on the channel. Um, but you know, when you're dealing with like Calvinism versus Arminianism, they're both applying a certain philosophy. I'm not sure if you know what terms I'm using here, but whatever. Um, you know, they're taking a certain philosophy and applying it to scripture. It's like, no, you are looking at it through a certain exegetical philosophical lens. So you can't, they are married. And then when you even think about a uh, little fun fact for anyone here, when it says the word became flesh, the, the Greek word there is a logos, which is, you know, where we get the word logic from. And so, and we are created an image of God. So if the word logos, logic, the mind of God, whatever you want to call it, became flesh, which is Jesus, and we're made in his image, it is easy to easily distinct the fact that no, we are supposed to be intellectual. We are supposed to th ask questions. In fact, the entire book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk basically asking questions and mm -hmm. you know, how can God be all loving yet? Let my entire city be destroyed. Like things like that. Like the problem of evil was in the Bible. Like it's a question yeah. that's asked. So I, I think that is so crucial. And I love that distinction between childlike faith versus childish faith. Cause also the childish faith is the one that, well, I heard this from so-and-so, so I'm just going to believe it instead of like, okay, how about I take that moment to actually really think about this and instead have that childlike faith where, like you said, I have strong confidence in this instead of just blind ignorance, right? So right. Um, the, the, the childish faith, I almost think, is like the, the ignorance is bliss faith, right? Like, right. You know, less, anyway, so that's just what came yeah. to mind. I thought that was really good. Um, oh, thanks. Can I add something, too? Um, yeah. Another thing is like, one thing I think people overlook too is just the way that I think philosophy, it really underlies almost everything. And I know it's like, you're a philosopher, of course you think that. But honestly, I mean, philosophy is basically fundamental assumptions about reality, knowledge, and morality, and, and some other stuff too, but those are the three big ones, you know? And so it's like, you can't, like, you can't avoid doing philosophy, you know? You can't, so, so to say like, um, set aside philosophy and do theology or, or whatever you said exactly. I mean, that almost doesn't even make sense. Like in and of itself, it's kind of a philosophical claim, but also, I mean, you can't like questions about whether God exists or what is the right thing to do? What's the moral thing to do? Or can we know God exists? I mean, those are all philosophical questions. So I think people who think they're like avoiding philosophy and doing something else, I think they just don't know what philosophy is exactly, but it's actually this really wide encompassing thing um, that sort of is at the base of almost everything we believe. So, no, absolutely. It's it's so funny to say because that's exactly when I've heard that I'm like, what? But as a to be fair, as a pastor, I've heard some really weird stuff. It depends what fringe circles you're getting to that you might engage in. I was raised very, 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 very conservative uh, uh, fundamentalist Baptist, and so there's some very strong extremes in those areas, and that's where you would hear those types of distinctions. Where I'm like, I don't think that word means what you think it means, you know? Like so, yeah. um, but you know, that's that's kind of the you know the issue where. I think that's what almost makes Christianity seem bankrupt to an unbelieving world is the fact that, well, every Christian, I, a lot of Christians I talk to, they have no brains whatsoever. And then they'll encounter somebody who may be philosophical and they're all of a sudden like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that Christians. I've actually been told by a person who now is a believer, I've been told by him that after I worked with him, like, well, you're the first Christian I ever met that actually had answers to a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that's kind of sad. Like, mm -hmm. I am Joe Schmo, okay? Like, <laughs> I'm in West Michigan, pastor guy. Like, uh, the fact that this is the first time you're hearing these things from other Christians, uh, that gave me uh, those things like that that made me passionate about uh, like conversations mm -hmm. we're having today. So, um, and I'm not even saying I'm amazing, by the way. Like I'm, I'm, I would say I'm adequate. Like I can do my job. So, mm -hmm. 
Um, anyway, but uh, with that being said, so what philosoph? So on this, I guess we're going to go more into your work now, instead of just your view on philosophy, and you know, obviously where, where you're raised and stuff like that. And of course, you know, you just got married too, so that's <laughs> fun. By the way, guys, she is coming with us from her honeymoon. <laughs> Not. Not really. <laughs> if you want to play that, you can. I'll get well, the other question up. <laughs> yeah, so as many of you know, coronavirus is happening, and we had plans to get married next month. Uh, my fiance, my, well, my now husband and I, uh, but basically those were sort of, uh, those had to be canceled because of travel restrictions and gathering restrictions and all of that. Uh, so we were just like, well, what do we do? And then we were like, let's just go get a marriage license and get married. We're kind of ready to be married. So I don't know if that's eloping. I guess you could call that eloping. Um, but we didn't even really go to a courthouse. We just like signed a paper. So, uh, but yeah, so we're hoping to still, we're still going to do a celebration and, you know, a, a ceremony and reception and everyone, everything with our family and friends. But, you know, it's, it's weird times. Sometimes, you, you know, calls for weird things. So, so yeah, I, I just got married and I guess I'm on my honeymoon, but you know, my husband is at work right now. So we're not really, uh, having a, a, a real honeymoon. I mean, we'd love to go somewhere, but it's hard with traveling right now. So we've talked about it a little bit. We might try to you know, go do something small, but yeah, it's just, it's a hard time to travel. So we'll see. I mean, I, yeah. I understand my honeymoon was like over a weekend because of work. So I it was like, Hey, we had two days. Eh. Um, <laughs> and so I understand. I think it's really funny because uh, for those of you guys who don't know, I saw her post it on Facebook right like two days ago. And I was like, uh, aren't we supposed to talk in two days? Like, um, but anyway, um, so anyhow, let's go ahead and go back into it. I just thought that was kind of a, a little funny, little personal point there. Just anyway, desperate times, desperate measures, anyway, oh, but so what philosophical, so you're a philosopher, obviously, you got a PhD in it. Uh, what philosophical structures have you studied the most and would be considered your specialty? Because a lot of people don't understand this either with uh, philosophy. It is a super wide range of topics that you're dealing with. So usually philosophers have like certain, they, they dabble in a lot of things, but they're really good in a couple areas. And that's one of the things I've noticed with a lot of them. So, um, and why are those the ones you've primarily focused on? Yeah, so my main two areas in philosophy are epistemology and philosophy of religion. So I'll sort of talk about each of those. So epistemology is kind of traditionally defined as the study of knowledge. So kind of like what is knowledge? How common is knowledge? You know, all, all the stuff about knowledge. But most people think um, belief is a part of knowledge and even rational belief is a part of knowledge. And so I've kind of honed in on that. Um, what is rational belief? Uh, what should we believe? When is belief irrational? That kind of thing. And I'm going to talk about this in a second, but I've also uh, studied the relationship between rational belief and probability or what's called credence. So I'll explain that. But, um, you know, the difference between I believe it's going to rain tomorrow and like I'm 90% sure it's going to rain tomorrow. How? What's the relationship between those two? So that's sort of my research in epistemology. Um, and then philosophy of religion is my other big area of research. So philosophy of religion is kind of about whether God exists, if God exists, what God is like, and then um, what kinds of religious commitments or beliefs are rational. And so that sort of third area is my main focus within philosophy of religion. So the rationality of religious commitment. And there's sort of two main threads, I guess, within that area of research. The first is faith. So what is faith? When is it rational? Um, can it be rational even if it kind of goes beyond the evidence or something? What would it even mean to go beyond the evidence? 
Um, so those are sort of a, a set of questions I'm interested in, but then I'm also interested in this argument. It's called Pascal's wager. Um, and I think we're going to talk about that in a little bit too, but basically it's an argument that it can be rational to believe in God or commit to God, even if you think it's sort of unlikely that God exists. So it's also kind of about commitment to God, but, uh, in a case where sort of God's existence maybe has a low probability. And so both of these sort of topics relate to kind of religious commitment or religious belief and when it's rational. So, yeah. Nice. Interesting. So, yeah, I thought that was actually, I really enjoyed I got like halfway through your papers and I was like, man, and you're actually one of the few people that can write stuff that doesn't put me to sleep. So congratulations. You do good. Um, actually, I think it's just the fact that you have a very like, you kind of hone in just on the issues and you do a really good job at parsing them. So I, I appreciate mm -hmm. that. But, um, which by the way, they're all up on her website so you can go stalk her there. But, um, and so when it comes to the, this very thing, like epistemology, you know, uh, the study of knowledge. And then of course, I, I like that how, what you put there when you talk about like, what does it mean to go beyond the evidence? Because I think no matter what, and this is something that maybe the atheist community might not necessarily admit, but no matter what, whatever you believe is you're going beyond evidence at some point. Cause you're basically take, you can, evidence only goes so far. So if eventually you have to reach a conclusion to said evidence, which is going to be beyond all the evidence that's there, right? Like, so it, in many ways. Yeah. So, I mean, even a court case when there's a crime, you can be very, very, very certain something has done, but the evidence only goes so far and you eventually have to land a conclusion that's going to be beyond evidence. Just, okay, based on this evidence, we're 99% certain he did kill her or whatever. So um, I find that I find that to be interesting. So anyway, mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to take a little bit of time because before we get into Pascal's wager, which is, uh, you know, what I've seen you interact with personally live before, and I think you do a really good job explaining that. Uh, but can you briefly briefly explained uh, belief and credence uh, and explain those two. Why do you advocate, you said, for the dualist view, which I'm glad you clarified that because I was like, I feel like what I'm reading here is a little bit of both and you're you know, like, it's like, I feel like there's a little bit more going on here. Uh, so why would you, and then you're like, nope, dualism, I'm like, okay, I already feel like I'm already going to preach. So then I fast forwarded to your paper there. But um, so what is your, uh, what do you, why do you advocate for the dualist view as well? And what's your strongest argument you think for that? Yeah, for sure. No, it's funny because, yeah, you there's different views about belief and credence. And one of them is what's called a belief first view. And I can explain that in a second. But I had written a paper actually arguing for that view with a friend who actually holds that view. But I had just helped him because I was like, oh, people aren't fair to this view. People are dismissing it way too quickly. We need to kind of show that a lot of these objections don't work. So we had actually sort of decided to come together and work on that together. So it's totally reasonable you would think that was my view, but that's actually, so because that paper actually just came out. But um, I actually, what I personally hold is a different view. It's weird. Philosophers sometimes do this thing where they like defend views that they don't hold. Um, maybe another kind of quirky thing about philosophy. They're like, oh, it's fun. Let's just like try it on like a pair of pants, you know? Um, so <laughs> it's, yeah, it's interesting. So that, that was a very reasonable assumption that um, I held that view. So um, let me, let me like circle back to the question though. So belief and credence. Okay. So belief is taking something to be the case, regarding it as true. If you believe snow is white, then it's the case that snow is white. It's true that snow is white, right? Um, and most people who think about belief think there's basically three attitudes we can take to any like sentence, like snow is white. We can believe it, we can withhold on it, or we can disbelieve it. Okay, so like maybe I believe it will rain tomorrow. I believe one plus one equals two, but I withhold belief that like a coin will land heads. 
Um, or that, like, I have an even number of hairs on my head. I don't count them, so, you know, could be even, could be odd. Um, and I disbelieve, you know, one plus one equals three. I disbelieve that the Cavs won the 2018 NBA Finals, you know, whatever. So there's basically these three attitudes we can take. And a lot of people just kind of, a lot of epistemology was just sort of focused on just these three. But what's interesting is, so I said I believe one plus one equals two, and I believe it will rain tomorrow. But notice I, I, I'm not confident to the same level in those beliefs. I'm more confident that one plus one will equal two than that it will rain tomorrow. Like the weather in Michigan is really unpredictable. And even if the forecast predicts rain, you know, who knows, <laughs> right? There's at least some chance that it's wrong. So it's always it's a gamble. It's always a gamble, right? So it's interesting that there's certain things we believe, but we're more confident in some than others. And so to capture this, epistemologists appeal to this thing I was talking about earlier, and it's called credences. Credences, basically, you can think about them kind of like your confidence level that something's true, but you can also think about them like a probability. So um, oftentimes they're put on a scale from like zero to one. Zero means you're sure that something's false. One means that you're sure that it's true. And then you can have credences all in between, right? So I might have like a 0.9 credence that it will rain tomorrow if there's a like 90% chance of rain on the forecast. But my credence that one plus one equals two is one or at least really close to one, you know, I'm almost positive one plus one equals two, right? Um, and then, you know, my credence that a coin will heads will be like more like 0.5. And my credence and something I disbelieve will be a lot closer to zero. So it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, we had beliefs where there's three attitudes, belief withholding disbelief. But then on the other hand, we have credences and there's all these attitudes in between. You could have like 0.67, you could, you know, so it's way more like specific. Um, and so, you know, one question is like, why do we have both of these? Like, what's the relationship between them? And, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to <laughs> nerd out too much on my dissertation, but basically what I tried to argue in my dissertation is these both have some kind of role to play in our mental lives. They're both important for various purposes. And um, the view that, that, that view basically that we have beliefs, we have credences, we're not going to reduce one to the other, that's called dualism. And some people reduce belief to credence or reduce credence to belief. So the view that it was in that paper that you talked about, that's a view that reduces credence to belief. It's called a belief first view. And then there's also views that say, no, really credences are what's fundamental. And beliefs are just like some kind of credence, you know? And I was saying, no, 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 don't reduce. There's beliefs, there's credences, and they both have a role to play. And I might actually briefly mention this um, relates to the thing we were just talking about before this question about how faith might go beyond the evidence. And the idea is that sometimes you can believe something, but your credence in it could move up or move down. But that doesn't mean you need to stop believing it. You know, um, I might, you know, believe it's going to rain tomorrow and then have a 0.9 credence it will rain tomorrow. And then the, the forecast changes and my credence goes down to like 0.7. Maybe there's only a 70% chance of rain, but I'll probably still believe it's going to rain tomorrow. And so it's interesting. Um, I won't go into all the details here, but as credences move up and down, um, we can still maintain our beliefs in certain cases. And so if you think faith is sort of similar, faith can kind of be maintained even when our credences go up and down, then that's actually a way that faith could go beyond the evidence, but still be rational. 
That would almost kind of touch on the whole idea of like the faith of a mustard seed, right? Like just a little mm -hmm. bit is all that you might need. And like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of questions. So your credences are going to, uh, might constantly be in flux. And as you experience different things, you know, your this area might be shifting, but it doesn't mean your belief necessarily does. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've mentioned before to people that, you know, uh, I was going through a stage of question asking. And so I guess now with, you know, a good understanding, it's like, oh, my credences were always like, oh, I, I, mm, I don't know. But I was like, I always believe this, but I was just just trying to figure out where that lands. And so I find that yeah. really interesting. And I, I, it was one of those things where, uh, like I said, then I'd like fast forward. I was like, oh, oh, there's sheets. No, there is the dualist paper. Um, like that. <laughs> so that that makes more sense. Because I, I, I remember thinking that too. I'm like, well, I feel like when I was just reading the belief first view, I'm like, I understand what's happening, but I feel like the you know the idea of credence is important too and uh, mm -hmm. so uh, it was a, it was really interesting and it was one of those things where i haven't heard many philosophers especially christian philosophers kind of dive into that because and I feel like a lot of Christians get scared when you start saying that. Like, well, my credence might change, but my belief is still there. And they're like, whoa, hold up. You mean you don't believe in God anymore? You're like, you're doubting. I'm like, no, no. it's just you're, you're, you're asking questions. You're not sure how sure this part, particular thing is. You're not sure how confident we can be in this particular area. But, you know, I definitely, maybe I'm at a point nine nine here, but I'm at like, a, nah, I don't know about that over here. So um, yeah. I think that's really important. I really actually appreciated that distinction and that you're actually the uh, my first exposure to somebody who actually kind of really dived into that. So um, I've kind of, I guess I didn't realize that that's what it was called uh, when, when I would talk to people a little bit about some of those things. So now it's really nice to have a framework and I have owe that to you. So thanks. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But, and I'll say too, like one thing, you know, if you have this dualist view where you have beliefs and you have credences and they're sort of these separate attitudes, you can explain how you can stay grounded in your faith um, even if your credences are moving around, you know, like you have something that you're holding on to that's sort of steadfast and this commitment, you know, to God's existence or to Christianity or whatever, but you can still acknowledge like, oh, that's a good objection. And maybe your credence goes down a little bit, but that doesn't make you any less grounded um, in your faith. And I actually have some papers. I don't necessarily want to go into all the details here, but I, I have some papers where I argue like you might think like, oh, like your credences they're always better and your faith is always better if they're closer to one. You always want them to be higher. But I actually argued that what's more important than certainty is like commitment. And so com like the commitment that's not just based on your beliefs, but it's also based on desires that can actually uh, give us kind of more grounding than like really high credences. So I think it's easy to think like, oh, if you have low credences, you're doubting, you're not fully committed, you know, but I just, I don't think that's the, the right picture. And I actually, I did an interview with Sean Hurst, who has a channel called Believing Thinkers, and I explained this in a lot more detail. So you maybe go watch that because we, you know, we don't have all the time in the world to go into all of that. But I do think um, kind of when you have this dualist picture, it opens up these really interesting views for faith. So. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, actually. In fact, I think that there's a lot of times where a Christian might actually have, um, I think of a new Christian, like someone who just accepted Christ. They don't know all the stuff. Like, they've never walked into a church and they just recently became Christian. I, it's like, okay, how high are their credences in all these different areas? You know, how literal do they take Revelation? You know, like things like mm -hmm. that. Like, 
where are their credences? But does that make their faith not? Like, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, in yeah. fact, we see plenty of examples of scripture where, let's just be honest, the disciples were super confused a few times. Yeah. I have a few, I can almost guarantee you that there's a few times their credences were a little like, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm staying the course, man, but I don't know. You seem a little nuts, but cool. Um, and so I think that's a really good, a good distinction. I think that's actually even backed up by the Christian worldview, if you want to be honest about it. So I think that's interesting. So, um, mm. and now I guess for the, for, I guess the meat of what I know of you, what I knew of you when I first started interacting with you, uh, which is Pascal's wager. Uh, this is one of those ones that, um, so when I've seen people use it as like a, a, a light apologetics point, they might make it, but not many people decide to completely explore it and dive into it. And I thought that was unique. I'm not sure if you just want to be the edgy kid who likes to just explore things that most people don't like to explore, but uh, I appreciated it. Um, but so can you can you briefly explain this wager, uh, like what you mean by that? Uh, you know, I, I know you've mentioned decision theory. Uh, I don't know how you want to go through this, but um, and then also you've also when in this wager you've mentioned like what is math maximum utility. Or, uh, and so can you help define that? And I saw an atheist once say, well, Liz, Liz Jackson didn't mention what maximum utility is. I'm like, actually she did, but okay. Um, so I just <laughs> wanted to make sure that you can say it here and that way I can definitely make sure you have. So, uh, and how would you be able to respond to people who'd believe that wagering is the wrong way to look at faith or such things? Yeah, I love these questions. These are great. So um, I, what, how I want to respond is first kind of start off with a little bit of just decision theory background, then kind of get into Pascal's wager and then sort of say how that relates to faith and kind of that last sort of objection. So decision theory. Okay, what is decision theory? It's basically just a model for making decisions. So it can be applied to almost any decision you would make at any point, you know, should I get car insurance? Should I bike or drive to work today? You know, should I bring an umbrella with me? Like almost anything. And basically what it is, it's, it's just a decision table. And you put in, you put in ways the world might be. And then you put in actions that you could take. And then you can actually um, like through that sort of do math to figure out what you should do. So as like just a really quick example, if you're saying, should I bring an umbrella with me when I go outside or whatever, um, you put in, well, what are the ways the world could be? It would rain or it would not rain. And then what are the actions? Bring umbrella, don't bring umbrella. And then based on, you know, what's the chance of rain? So credences again, right? You know, 90% chance of rain, 10% chance of rain, you put those in. And then, you know, how much do I want an umbrella? How bad would it be if I got wet? Um, how annoying would it be to carry an umbrella around if it wasn't raining? You put those in, and then decision theory just tells you whether you should bring an umbrella or not. So it's actually pretty cool, but it's just this model we can use um, to make decisions. And so basically, um, it's a it's a more complicated pros and cons list that everyone yeah, oh, has probably that's, done. That's beautiful. Yeah, and the thing is, like, people are like, oh, it's this technical thing that like economists do, blah blah blah, and like that's true, but also. Like, arguably, decision theory is something we're sort of doing all the time, even if it's, like, a little more basic version. Like, yeah, like, pros and cons lists. Like, when you're wavering between two options and you're kind of thinking about, well, what's the chance this happens? Like, you're trying to decide which insurance to buy. Like, what's the chance I get in a wreck? Like, whatever. How, how valuable is my car? That's just decision theory. You're just doing decision theory. So it's easy to think about it like this crazy academic thing, but it's actually, I mean, it's modeled after, after our everyday decision making. So... Um, I don't think it's as like, yeah, academic as, as you might think. Um, the math can 
obviously get more complex, but the math is even actually basically just addition and multiplication. So it's really not that bad. No calculus or anything. Um, yeah, so you, you talked about maximum utility. Okay, so utility, it's just goodness or value. So example of utility, staying dry, you know? Money could be utility, something you, you want, you know? Love would be utility, anything that's valuable. That's utility. Utility and value, you can just use interchangeably. Um, and then, so maximum utility, that would just be the most valuable or the best option, right? Um, and the, the thing that's really key for decision theory, it's what's called, it's maximizing expected utility, or you could just say maximizing expected value if, you know, that's easier. Value is a more, I think, everyday word. And basically what that means is you should do the thing that gives you the best chance at the good outcome. Um, so it's just kind of a rule that people use in decision theory uh, to say, like, do the thing that gives you the best chance at, at getting a good outcome, you know. And uh, I'm trying to think of a, a good example of this. Sometimes it's not totally straightforward, like when you're buying insurance and you think, well, it's kind of expensive, but if I wreck my car, it would be a huge relief to have this insurance. So, you know, it, it's a little tricky, like, is it better to buy it or not? You know, you're kind of torn. And then if you do decision theory and kind of put the numbers in, then you can kind of figure out what gives you the best chance at the good outcome. Is it worth putting this money up front for the more expensive insurance or is it worth sort of taking the risk? So that's basically what it means. Um, I think a lot of times philosophers use these really big words, uh, but they really don't mean that crazy. Like epistemology, it just means like the study of knowledge. It's like knowledge, like that's something we talk about every day. You know, utility, it's just value, anything that's valuable, you know? So I feel like um, a lot of times these words can be intimidating, but they actually have pretty straightforward meanings. So, it's funny, yeah. yeah no, as a theologian, it's really funny how often we. I mean, it's the same thing. Like, like, well, can you ex, can you do a hermeneutical exegete of that? I'm like, and, and it's like, all what you mean is, can you interpret that and just simply pull from the text through your interpretation? It's like, it's so simple, but we just come up with more and more complex ways to say things. But they are helpful because that way it creates like an actual like box for you to work in instead of just. So it, it it's it is important. I do appreciate it, but I do think it's funny when you are looking at the. These things where you're like, yeah, it's a really complex way to say this. And everyone goes, oh, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it happens in philosophy all the time. And yeah, I mean, it's good to have words for certain things, but I also think it can make it a lot harder to understand. And it's like, that's kind of sad because I, I like it when, you know, philosophy isn't just a couple people in like a tiny room at a college, but it's something that like a lot more people can engage in and, you know, in the church too. So um, so there's, you know, there's trade-offs there, but yeah, I do think, uh, just being clear about our language is important. Um, so, okay. So that's kind of a little bit about decision theory, a little bit about maximizing expected value. If you want more about that, I sort of just did the real basics. So there's, you know, I have papers and stuff that I would be happy to point you to. Okay. So let's talk about Pascal's wager now. Pascal's wager. So a lot of arguments for God's existence are like, uh, you know, the universe began to exist. The universe has a cause. Therefore, you know, that cause is God. So God exists, right? Or like the universe is fine-tuned and the best explanation for that is if God exists. So God exists, right? So they, they conclude that God exists, right? Pascal's wager, um, my, my rebellious interest in it or whatever, um, it's a little different. It's actually an argument that you should believe in God, but it doesn't conclude God exists. It just concludes that you should believe in God. And um, the way that they do this is, well, traditionally, at least it's kind of done with decision theory, like we were talking about with the umbrella example. But instead, 
in this case, there's sort of two ways the world could be. Again, um, God exists. God doesn't exist. And then there's two actions you can take. You could believe in God or not believe in God. And you can also frame that as kind of commit to God or not commit to God if you prefer to think about it as a commitment rather than belief, which some people do. And I kind of, I, I'm fine with either way, actually, belief or commitment. Um, but the argument then kind of goes like this. Well, look, if you believe in God and God exists, you have infinite gain if you go to heaven. If you believe in God and God doesn't exist, um, if you go to hell, that's negative infinity. If you're annihilated, that would be zero. You know, either way, it's not infinitely good. Uh, if God doesn't exist, whatever you gain or lose by believing in God or not believing in God would be finite. And so the argument says, um, again, maximize expected value. That means that's the decision that's likely to lead to the best outcome. It leads to the best outcome if you believe in God or commit to God rather than, you know, not believing in God or not committing to God. Um so that's the really basic version of the argument. Um, and I think in some of the videos, people were confused because I actually think it has to be a little bit more complicated than that. For one thing, I actually think we have to count, account for various religions in the decision matrix. So it can't just be God exists, God doesn't exist. But you should actually think about, well, what's the probability that Christianity is true? What's the probability that Islam is true? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it, the, the ultimate thing I endorse is going to be more complex. You can look at my paper called Salvaging Pascal's Wager for an example of how, how this more complicated wager would work. But Really um, good paper. I'm just <laughs> very excellent. So continue. Thank Didn't you. mean to interrupt you. You're on a roll. Thank you. No, you're good. Um, so... Um, I guess what I wanted to address then was this. So that's kind of the basics of Pascal's wager. And I can't go into kind of all the ways I'm going to, I want to make it more complicated, but hopefully that's a really basic overview. But I did want to address this, this question, which a lot of people ask, which is, well, isn't this like a bad motive? Isn't this the wrong way to look at things? Like, is God really like gambling? Like, are you going to like use the same strategy with God? Like that you do when you go to the casino, like there's something kind of messed up about that. Um, so I guess there's a couple things to say, okay. Um, the first thing, I think it's important to distinguish between selfish and self-interested. So when a decision is selfish, you're sort of only considering yourself in it to the detriment of other people. So it's like, I'm going to hog all this for myself and not share it with anyone else, and it's going to hurt others, but I don't care about them. I just care about myself, right? Um, but you can be self-interested without being selfish. And self-interested, it just means you're doing the things you want. Like you're just taking the means to your ends. So this is literally like 99% of what we do every day. Your end could be your teeth not rotting, so you brush your teeth. Your end could be you don't get fired, so you go to work. I mean, your end could even be you want to make your wife happy, so you like make her dinner or whatever. You know, I mean, your ends can be about other people. Your ends could be, you know, whatever. But it's just taking the means to your own end. So it's basically following your goals. And that's not always, like, that can't always be a bad thing because that's, what well, we do all the time, you know? Um, and so I don't think the wager is inherently selfish. It might be self-interested, but that's that's okay because that's like all of our decisions, you know? Um, and I think another, another thing I really like to push is here's the way I like to think about the wager. Um, someone thinks, okay, I have a lot of doubts about whether God exists and maybe my credence that God exists is even below 0.5. So pretty low, you know? But, like, think about the possibility of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good creator. 
Like, that's amazing. That would be really cool if God existed. Like, that's a just a really cool idea. And if, if God was looking out for me and, and watching over my life and wanted this relationship with me. Um, and so because I think that it would be really good to pursue that relationship on the chance that God might exist, I'm going to commit my life to God. Um, and I, 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 it doesn't have to be something that's this selfish thing or this thing that's like, you know, a casino. I mean, I just, you don't have to think about it that way. You can think about it as the argument that a commitment to God can be rational, even in the face of serious doubt. And I think you can think about it two ways. You can think about it as someone who's never had a commitment to God at all, um, sort of coming to have that commitment, even though they, you know, still have a ton of doubts and questions. Or you can think about it as someone who has that commitment, but again, their credence is getting really low, how they can be rational and continuing in that commitment, even if they have a lot of doubts. And so I think if you think about it like, there's this possibility that God exists and that would be a beautiful thing. So I'm gonna commit to God, you know, in order to sort of uh, know God if God exists. I don't think that there's any reason to think that that's selfish or that's bad motives. And I think that's a very legitimate way to sort of view what's going on um, in Pascal's wager. And of course you can have versions of Pascal's wager that are really selfish or really bad motives. But I think the point here is that I don't think that's essential to the wager. I don't think that's, that has to be the way we think about Pascal's wager. And actually, it's funny how often uh, Pascal's wager, uh, I have heard people actually quote like a kind of a really, really like almost dumbed down version of it. Like it's the, uh, you know, the whole, well, I'd rather live my whole life like there is no God. Uh, I'd rather live my life there is a God and find out I'm wrong than to live my life like there is no God and find out I'm wrong. I've heard people mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's a, it's a real simplified version of just, well, what gives me the most? You know, like, okay, I you know, I might have some of these doubts, but you know what? I'm going to live for God and put my faith and belief there and just pursue and commit to that, even though I might have some of my doubts. And, you know, so I think of that. And then when you said, like, it's not always inherently selfish, I mean, this is one of the things that I think one of the most overlooked things of the golden rule, which is love your neighbor as yourself. You know, everyone goes, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. And we always forget the fact that what does he say there? as yourself who like uh, like self-love where we live at an age that self-love is too much like it's almost like self-idolatry but like mm -hmm. self-love isn't a bad thing you know that's why i do brush my teeth that is why i do work out that is why i do try not to just fill my life full of garbage because yes i'm trying to take care of myself so i go to work every day so um in fact we would say that people who aren't self-interested at all are actually hurting if any from a theological point, I'd say you're hurting the, our, if our body is the temple of God, then you are hurting the temple of God. You're not taking care of the temple of God. So I think that is definitely a fair thing to mention. And I think that's definitely something that I, I think that's an unfair uh, accusation some people might make because, uh, and I don't think they quite think that through what they're actually asking. So um, mm. there's a lot, you have a lot of good work on that. And obviously people can go check that out as well. We'll put your website uh, uh, tagged in here as well. But anyway, um, so would you say that faith in God, I, I mean, obviously you do, but uh, is faith in God reasonable and why? Yeah, that's that's great. So, I mean, obviously the answer is yes, right? I think faith in God definitely can be reasonable. Um, I do want to say first, though, I don't think it's a good idea to just define faith as either rational or irrational, right? So I actually think about faith as more like belief. So it's a thing that can be rational, but can obviously be irrational, right? If you just believe that 
your favorite sports team is going to win the Super Bowl just because they're your favorite sports team, you know, that's probably not a rational belief. But a lot of times our beliefs are rational, like a ton of our beliefs are rational. Um, so, so I think, you know, some people like the new atheists, they just define faith as irrational. And other people, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe some Christians, they just define faith as rational. But I think that's actually, we shouldn't do either of those, that faith can be rational and it can be irrational. And we need some kind of story or argument or account of faith that can show us that at least in most cases, faith in God is not irrational. Um, and, and notice too, it doesn't mean that it's never irrational, you know, um, there could be people that believe in God, but have no evidence for it or don't have a good basis for it. And, you know, there's, there's, I think, really interesting debates. And like I said earlier, you might not need to have a bunch of philosophical arguments for it, but you might need some kind of basis for faith. Like, testimony or experience or something you know so i'm open to the idea that at least in some cases faith might be irrational but i think in, in most cases faith in god isn't irrational um so why well, think that like what like what's my argument for that okay so um i'm gonna basically try to in like two minutes summarize a paper <laughs> that i have um it's probably yeah it's it's gonna have to be quick so i'm gonna just encourage people to go check out the paper if they want more but Good basically luck. Yeah, <laughs> I have this paper where what I argue is, um, I think I talk about like eight or maybe 10, I forget, a, a lot of different definitions of faith. And I argue that on all these definitions, either one of two things is true, that faith isn't irrational, so faith is perfectly rational, or we have no reason to think that it's something that most Christians or theists have. Um, so... The paper is called The Nature and Rationality of Faith, and um, you can find that on my website. But I'm just going to give three definitions, and then you can go kind of look at the rest for the, the longer argument. So here's one definition. So suppose we define faith as things that we don't inquire into. And this, this would mean you have faith in something if you don't really look for evidence for or against it. You um, aren't interested in gathering evidence about faith. You're not you know, you're not inquiring into getting more evidence to justify your faith. Okay, so two points, right? First, sometimes we can believe things and we don't have to inquire into them and it's fine. Okay, so if Will, if you're like, if I'm like, hey, what did you have for breakfast? And you're like, oh, I had eggs for breakfast, right? I don't have to like go like interview your wife and like check the trash at your house and make sure there's eggshells in it and like see if there's like a frying pan that's dirty in your dishwasher. Like, no, like that's crazy. I can just believe you, you know? <laughs> um, and so in certain cases, like it's fine to believe something, especially if you're initially given a bunch of evidence for it, you don't have to go out and keep looking for evidence, you know? Um, so sometimes we don't have to inquire into things to make them rational. Um, but I think the other thing to note is that I think some, a lot of times Christians do inquire into their faith uh, to at least some degree. And, you know, even if this isn't, I mean, some Christians are really into philosophy and theology, but a lot of Christians are just sort of interested in general reasons they believe what they, be they, they believe, sorry, why they believe what they believe. Um, their, you know, testimony, reliability of scripture, uh, you know, even experiences of God, that, like there's a lot of arguments that that can count as evidence. So I'm not saying that, you know, all Christians are like these philosophers that can just rattle off 10 arguments for God's existence, but I'm saying there's some level of evidence gathering, you know? Um, and so the problem with this definition is they have to put the bar, like, so they have to say, how much do we have to inquire? And obviously, like, in some cases, we don't have to inquire at all. So they can't put the bar too high. 
Um, but if they put it too low, then, you know, the Christians are going to start beating it. Right. So, so I think the problem is, you know, look, if the bar is really low, then Christians aren't going to, you know, faith won't be irrational. And if the bar is really high, then Christians won't have faith because they do inquire into their faith. So that's one example. Sorry, this is kind of taking a while, but I'll do two more very quickly. Seriously. Um, No, take your, take your time. (laughs) I'm I'm enjoying every second. (laughs) Great. So here's another possible definition of faith. Um, faith are things that aren't based on evidence. So when you have faith that God exists, that's not based on evidence that God exists. Um, so would that be irrational? Well, probably, you know, um, especially if so philosophers have this thing that's called evidentialism, which is the view that something has to be, uh, based on evidence for it to be rational, like belief or faith or something, you need evidence for that, for it to be rational. Um, but the problem here is that, uh, most Christians base their faith on at least some kind of evidence, right? Um, so this is an interesting place where I think philosophers and epistemologists are thinking about evidence like a lot more broadly than other people. So evidence doesn't have to just be a philosophical argument, right? I have evidence that there's a cup on the table in front of me because I see that cup. You know, I have evidence that you ate eggs for breakfast because you told me you did. And I don't have like reasons to think you were lying or you would, you know, you're there's some reason that you don't want me to know what you had for breakfast or whatever, right? So testimony. Mind your business, okay? (laughs) So, and like, you know, think about like, how do we know like the earth is in the shape that it's in and the countries are where they are? Like you haven't been to all those countries. You believe it because of testimony, because someone told you, you know? So we rely on testimony all the time. We rely on perception all the time. These have to be sources of evidence unless like most of our beliefs are irrational, you know? Um, And so given this sort of broader understanding of evidence, then it's like just false that Christians don't base their belief on evidence. You know, Um, there's testimony, there's um, experiences of God, and there's even arguments for and against Christianity, which again, not all Christians know about, but still it's there, you know? So, So on this definition, if faith is something that's not based on evidence, yeah, faith would be irrational, but most Christians don't have faith, you know? Um, so that's the second definition, and I'll just give you one more. So in response to this, some people might say, well, I don't like that kind of evidence. I don't like testimony, and I don't like experience. So, you know, that's that's not what faith is. Faith is something that's not based on scientific evidence. You need scientific evidence for faith. And when you have a belief that's not based, or, you know, faith when it's not based on scientific evidence, um, that's irrational. Okay, so the problem with this, (laughs) well, look, so do we have, do most Christians base their belief on scientific evidence? Um, Maybe some do. If you like the fine-tuning argument, it's possible, right? But probably not. I mean, let's be real. Like, most people aren't Christians because of the fine-tuning argument, and a lot of Christians maybe don't even know what it is. So, you know plausibly most Christians faith isn't based on scientific evidence but the problem with this definition is look it you don't have to (laughs) a belief doesn't have to be based on scientific evidence to be rational that's just crazy um philosophy math morality uh even assumptions that are fundamental to science like induction which is that the future will uh sorry the future will be like the past those aren't things we can get scientific evidence for. There are these kind of fundamental assumptions that we have to make about the world. So these can't be based on scientific evidence. And notice, even the statement itself that in order to be rational, something has to be based on scientific evidence. That can't be based on scientific evidence, right? 
So on this definition, most Christians, uh, well, most Christians would have faith, but faith isn't irrational. So um, this is just like a little preview. I go over a lot more definitions in this paper, but this is kind of one argument I give for why I don't think that faith is irrational. Look, either whatever you define faith as, that's not going to be irrational, or it's not going to be something that most Christians have. <laughs> oh, Brian over here, the producer, he was like freaking out on your last point. He's like, yes, yes. <laughs> like it was like, everything that you just said is exactly what we're thinking. Yeah. And that's something that's so overlooked where it's like, no, everything. Uh, we, we be, like, like I said, induction, like I say all the time, like, I don't know for sure. I cannot know without a shadow of a doubt that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You know, I can assume it based on all the times in the past, but I do not, you cannot scientifically prove that. Also, even the scientific method is not something that can be scientifically proven. Uh, that's still a philosophy on how we get certain evidences. And I find it funny how people say some of those things, because as well as like with the new atheists, you know, one of the things that they struggle with is let's say when you're getting into it now, I don't care how... You know, I understand that the evolution creationism thing is a huge debate in Christianity, and I'm not talking about one way or the other. But either way, the new atheist, it's like, well, you're still saying that something happened uh, at the beginning that was not caused by a, another mind, that things, it, whether they evolved or didn't, that something didn't design them. So those are still things that you are thinking that you believe, one might say, a faith of those things. And so either way, it's not so much the question of do we have faith? I think every human being has faith in something. Yeah, that's something that's just we see every single day. There's a belief at least, or a credence or whatever, however you want to define the different parts of this. Everyone has a belief of something. So what is your belief in? And uh, I've noticed that when I kind of mention that, people go, like, oh, that's a good point. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's just something funny that, is, that Christians are the ones who always get accused of having the belief when well, really we all kind of do. So no, it is not irrational to believe in God. That's the whole point there. But anyway, uh, forgive my tangent. But um, so how do you now? So obviously, um, philosophy is something that is something you do. We also talked about how important it is. But how do you how do you think that what you teach and believe with philosophy? Like, how do you think that what this particular thing that we were talking about, how do you think it helps unite the church? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's actually um, something I hadn't really thought much about before um, you asked. So it, it was a nice opportunity for me to think a little bit more. Um, so I think some of this goes back to some of the things I was talking about at the beginning. And um, I do think philosophers, partially because of the nature of their discipline and the kind of person that goes into philosophy, it forces you to kind of learn to disagree well and learn to kind of um, have arguments and even have discussions or debates in a really cordial and civil way. And uh, I think it, they even do a good job at sort of avoiding, um, you know, this is my group and that's your group. It's kind of like, we're all philosophers, we're all in this together and we really disagree all the time, you know. Um, and so I think one thing that's really important for church unity is knowing like, you can have one theological position and I can have another theological position, but Ultimately, you know, we're both still Christians. We're both still following God. We're both still following Jesus. And um, we can disagree well, and we can still be united and not, you're in the Calvinist group and I'm, I'm in the Armenian group or whatever. And like, we're like this separate, you know, thing. But it's like, no, like we have like these core fundamental things in common. And I think um, 
yeah, learning to see it as an enterprise where we're learning together rather than an enterprise that it's me versus you. I think um, I think I think that's actually something that philosophy can kind of bring to the table and really help us with sort of having having these disagreements under a unified front or, or like in a way that we're, we're more fundamentally unified, but we can still disagree on certain things. So um, that's one thing I'm going to I'm going to say, I guess there's another thing I wanted to say that's maybe a little bit more controversial. And I'm actually sort of interested if you have thoughts on it. Um, but I think one definition that I've thought about a little bit in terms of Christianity is sort of internal versus external um, unity. And I do wonder um, if we might be more internally unified, even if we're not externally unified. And here's what I mean by that. Um, there's tons of denominations. There's like lots of, <laughs> you know, theological disagreements. There's Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox. And then within, you know, Protestants especially, there's a bunch of denominations within that. Um, so in that sense, we're sort of externally disunified. But I think like, think about like this experience, which I think if you're a Christian, you've probably had before is, you know, you're sitting next to someone on a plane, you kind of start chatting with them. After a little bit, you find out that you're both Christians. And it doesn't really matter what denomination they are. You sort of feel this bond or this connection. Um, and I think in John, right before uh, Jesus went to the cross, he sort of talked about this unity that Christians would experience. And I think that might be sort of what he's referring to, which is like, when you realize someone else is a Christian, you kind of realize you have this really fundamental, important thing in common. And that kind of bonds you together in a way. And you're kind of like looking out for each other. It's kind of like um, both my parents were like in fraternities and sororities. And it's like you find someone in your fraternity and you're kind of like you're looking out for each other. You're on the same team. And I think that's sort of what it's like when you kind of meet someone else who's another Christian. And so I do wonder if um, sometimes we're too focused on external unity and not focused enough on like that internal unity. And maybe one goal could be like to get the external unity to kind of reflect the internal unity more or something. Um, but yeah, I do think that distinction might be a little bit overlooked and um, there might be ways to be unified even if we still have these like denominations or something, so. No, I actually think that's a fantastic point, the internal versus external, because uh, I won't let you keep going, but right when you said, well, this person might have one theological position, and this person might have a different <laughs> theological position, and I'm over here screaming, at least they have a theological position. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> like, at least they have, we, you know, and it's like, I'm like, okay, you know, we can disagree on so many things. I, I have some friends of mine that are Calvinist. I have some uh, friends of that are, are Arminian. I tend to be a Molinist, which means that mm -hmm. I make nobody happy. So. <laughs> um, and But one thing I've realized in my church, so in my church I've had both. I've had Calvinists and Arminians, and I've had people who have no idea what we're t even talking about. And uh, then, uh, and so I've noticed that in the church, so in my thoughts is, yes, we ought to be internally unified. We all worship Jesus Christ. And though, yeah, we might externally disagree on some things. You know, I might not, dis uh, might not agree with exactly that particular position, but... Am I making the mountains of the molehills? I always think of the disciples, so to mm -hmm. add to that, um, I think, so we have Matthew, who's the tax collector, right? And which means, let's be honest, he's kind of a government shill, right? Like, <laughs> he, he's taking everyone's money. He, uh, they're known to be dishonest. Everyone hates him. He works for the government. And then you come over here, and then you have the zealot. And it's like, 
and he wanted to overthrow that government and you would like that group and so you're like mm. okay and they traveled together for three and a half years with jesus and you cannot tell me that they did not have a political disagreement they did not have maybe even a slight theological difference on how they viewed things. You know, uh, with the coronavirus thing, I'm seeing Christians uh, fighting right now over mm. obeying the government, Romans 13, or Hebrews 10, 25, we're not going to forsake the assembling, and we're not X, Y, Z. So, like, and it's funny, because I'm like, you almost have Matthew, the Romans 13 government guy, and then you have the zealot libertarian dude over here. So it is really funny how that was like, well, we've seen that ever since the beginning. We've seen Peter and Paul in the New Testament really, really get after each other. Um, you know, Paul even kicked Mark out for a while. It was like, nope, you suck. And then just like kicked him out. So it's like, these things have always been there. But what did Paul say later, which is like, no, he is beneficial for the ministry. He is beneficial for the cause of Christ. So I think you're dead on accurate because I've said this all the time. That's why I started the channel, The Church Split, because I've actually, as a pastor, I've experienced church splits where people either had a theological difference. Um, most of it in my realm was uh, less theological and more practical, which was dealing with like what I call liberty issues, which is, should I drink? Should I not drink? Should I get a tattoo? Should I not get a tattoo? Should I listen to music with drums? Should I not listen? Yeah. Like the, like the, the things where it's like, okay, how you choose to do that's more in a liberty area than a complete absolute theological area. Like, you know, we know for a fact, theologically, murder is bad. You know, like right. that is an absolute these are less absolute, and most of my splits were over those. So again, being internally unified is extremely important. You know, not making a mountains out of the molehills. You know, we all follow Jesus. We all believe in the infallibility of scriptures. Now, we all might interpret some of those things differently. That's fine. Uh, but again, that's where we get philosophical, and we learn how to exchange those ideas without just guns pointing. In fact, I have a friend of mine. His name's Sam, and he makes fun of me all the time for my theological positions. That is a friendly like banter, and I do the same. To, to him, the Calvinist pig. Um, so, <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, uh, that, that's the. So I really like that. The internal versus external. I, I mean, I've heard that so many times as a pastor. Well, you all can't even get each other right. I'm like, I don't know. I have some pastor friends of mine in different denominations, and we get along just fine. And so, mm -hmm. um, I think there's a, probably some ways we could show that better. Um, and probably in a way is being more philosophical and being willing to engage in the differences without, mm -hmm. you know, putting the guns at each other. So, good mm -hmm. point. Good point. That's really. That's really great because I know you're more philosophical. It is funny how that even again we see philosophy affecting the church. So that leads mm -hmm. us right into our, my my final question here, which is how do you believe philosophy can impact the church? And I know we've talked touched on it a little, but go ahead and feel free to flesh that out. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a couple things. So I think the first is it just gives us a reason for the hope we have. You know, it it you know like it's true, right? Like Christianity is true, and I think. Uh, doing philosophy can kind of help us see that. It can help us see the best arguments for that um, and show like there really is evidence for Christianity. It's not this thing that you just have to like accept blindly. Um, so I think that that can really strengthen people's faith and, and help them when they're sort of having doubts and questions. Um, and actually that is leads right into my second point, which is it helps Christians when um, they're having doubts to see that there are real answers to these doubts. Um, and I think it's like just terrible when someone's having doubts or questions and someone just says, you just need to have more faith. Stop asking questions. It's like, okay, yeah, like stick your head in the sand. Don't think anymore. Just accept whatever I say. Like really? Like no. <laughs> Sorry. So I just, that's like a personal pet peeve, but I think that both misunderstands like what faith is. Um, and I think it also is not the way that Jesus responded to doubters. Like I mentioned this on another interview, but 
look, doubting Thomas, he's like, I don't believe it until I see it. And then what did Jesus say? Like, just have faith? No, he's like, dude, touch my hands, touch my side. You know, he gave him evidence. Um, And so I think that like philosophy can be a huge part of helping people by giving them evidence um, when they have doubts and questions. And I want to say too, like, that's one reason that actually the internet is great because it's like when people have doubts and questions, there's so many different channels like yours and others um, and not only YouTube, but blogs and, and podcasts and so many, so many places that people can find, um, find answers to these questions. And again, like, that's why it's so cool the way that Christian philosophy is taking off too, because a lot of Christian philosophers are thinking about and working on these issues. And um, I'm hoping like that can be something that gets out to the general public as well. Um, so those are two ways philosophy can impact the church. And I guess I also just want to add too, I think it can help people that aren't Christians. It can help them see that Christian faith is reasonable and sort of help um, people overcome intellectual barriers that they might have to faith. So, I mean, there's debates about this, but in my view, some people genuinely have intellectual barriers. They have questions. They don't know what to say about the problem of evil. They don't know what to say about the problem of divine hiddenness. Um, faith in, you know, science, like how do we reconcile faith and science? Like, all, like these are tough issues, right? And I think philosophy can kind of help us see that Christian faith is reasonable and has good answers to these questions. And this can be a real barrier for people to kind of becoming a Christian. So I think that's another really important role that philosophy has to play. Man, there is so much there that I was like <laughs> freaking out about. Uh, that no, that's so <laughs> true. Uh, there's there's so much there where like when you said doubting Thomas, I also thought of Job. When Job's like, why would you do this? Why you know at first he does re- responds really well when he lost everything, but then he kind of gets to the point where he just he just grieves grieves get to God, and the God in like chapter thirty eight basically does the whole like what he said to Moses, which is like the whole who made man's mouth, all right? Who set the boundaries of the sea? Stop whining, I'm in control. And then and then mm. Job even goes, oh man, I am so sorry, and you know he like basically goes, I will shut up and not say a word anymore. You are God, and then we see that later on pay off because God told him God didn't give him the whole just you just got to have faith man he goes no 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 who's more powerful like is it me or is it you you know and okay i am then you need to trust me a little bit longer and then in the end we saw his circle come you know his story come full circle and what happened so yeah no and i think that is such a cop out i have a friend of mine who's going through a real tough time right now uh and he says actually we had him on for an interview um recently Mm -hmm. and he's basically leaving a really legalistic type of background and one of the things he talked about is how his marriage was falling apart and they were almost at the point he said that they were just basically too poor for a divorce and Mm -hmm. Uh, all the the advice he kept getting was have faith. Just have faith. Just pray about Mm -hmm. it. Have faith. And it's like well, that's not that's not even as that's not the right way to look at things. Uh, you need to have thinking about it and then applying it, right? There's got to be a thought, uh, you know. Think about it and then you apply. You just don't believe. Like I can't believe that my marriage is going to be perfect tomorrow. That I just prayed hard enough and th- and believed hard enough, and suddenly my wife is going to be like, my husband's the most amazing man in the world. No, she's still probably still wake up tomorrow thinking I have terrible bleached hair with a horrible impulsive nature and uh, you know all these terrible things, you know, anyway, but I just, so I think that is such a true point that you mentioned there. God, that's not how God handled it. And in fact, again, we look at so much in the Bible where people engaged questions and Jesus answered questions and Mm -hmm. he got, you'll notice guys, God is, you know, God is truth. So he's not scared of your questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, the entire book of Habakkuk is a question. He's not scared of your questions. In fact, 
he even says, you know, the was it the foolishness of God? The foolishness of God is wisdom to man, or however that's worded exactly. It's it's this whole idea of like, yeah, no, I know the fact that my ways are above your ways, and that you guys are gonna have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's why we've been given the ability to rationalize and think. So I loved, I loved, loved that. Uh, I thought that was a great way, to, a great way to like land the plane there, Liz. Good job. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think I mean I'll just add really quick one more time just this point that using reason and using logic and using even like in a divorce, like decision-making tools, that's not like exclusive with relying on the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit can use reason and use logic and, um, you know, help us. Like God gave us brains for a reason, right? And the Holy Spirit can work through our reasoning through something and through our brains. So again, I want to say, do not think about it like there's me using human reason and then there's the Holy Spirit. Like, no, like God can work through your reasoning to kind of reveal himself, reveal his will, help you figure out what to do in a tough situation, uh, help you figure out the answer to some objection, you know. So don't think about that as not the Holy Spirit or not relying on God because that's that's just not true. So. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't, I honestly couldn't agree more. So, um, but I really, I, Liz, I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, I, you know, I, you know, take the time out of your schedule and all of that to chat with us, but I think there's so much here that Christians do really need. And that's my whole goal with this channel is to educate and give people the ability to look into some of these issues and to actually critically think. So, um, for people who don't know your website is what Liz dash Jackson, right.com. Liz dash, yeah, not a Liz dot. Liz dash Jackson. Yeah, I know it's 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 confusing, and um, the websites I I was wanting were taken. Unfortunately, there's actually another philosopher named Liz Jackson who I think has LizJackson.com. So I have Liz dash Jackson.com. But yeah, that's my <laughs> website. And if you, I mean, yeah, if you're interested in the more academic stuff, there's a page, a research page, and you can follow links there to download my papers. But if you're interested in kind of uh, maybe less academic stuff, I also have a page that's public philosophy and I have a bunch of interviews and debates and blog posts and podcasts and all of everything. And then this will be linked there as well. But like all of those I've done are linked there. So that's stuff. If you're like, I don't really want to sit down and like read a boring academic paper. I mean, some people like that. I like that. But if you're not into that, um, then yeah, I, podcasts and I know I'm a nerd, <laughs> but yeah, so I would encourage, um, yeah, people to look at either of those, but yeah, my website's the best, the best place to find me. So. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually how I find out how to contact you. So I went straight there. I first went Liz dot Jackson. I realized that was not you at all. Um, uh. So, but uh, yeah, no, thank you so much for being on Liz. Uh, so anyway, thank you guys for watching all this. I know it's, it's longer, but I think that's where education comes in is we have to put time into it. If you want to learn stuff, you got to put time into it. You can't just walk out, you expect a five minute conversation and know the mysteries of the world. So thank you guys for watching. My name is Will. This has been Liz. And this is the church split. <laughs>